just going to ask this morning, if you have your Bible, would you please turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start uh, reading this morning at verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. On Sunday mornings, we've been trying to look into the salvation of Jesus Christ, and we've been looking at some different perspectives on Jesus' salvation. And uh, this morning, we're going to take another tact. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning, Lord, you would just help us to gather our thoughts. We pray, Lord, that we would... Uh, Lord, focus upon your word and I pray that uh, our thoughts about you and our thoughts about our faith, Lord, would be directed by the things that we read in your word. We ask, Lord, that they would be scriptural perspectives on our Saviour and we ask that today you would encourage our hearts. Lord, we would see Jesus. We pray that you would do that through the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Attending court is a sobering experience. I don't know whether you've had the chance to attend court. Uh, Even just in the galleries, attending court is a sobering experience. When you walk into the courtroom, you notice that people are attired very formally. Uh, When the judge enters the courtroom or the magistrate, uh, everyone is meant to stand for their arrival. Uh, And then uh, you have to address the judge or the magistrate, either as your worship or your honour, depending on the court in which you are. There is great attention to procedure in the court. Only certain certain people can approach the bench at certain times. Uh, There are certain things that must be said at certain times. There is an order that the court must proceed with. And there are certain things that are admissible or inadmissible, depending on different rules of law. All of this goes about to produce quite a somber mood, uh, both in the procedure, but then also in the uh, significance of the occasion. Often there is, uh, when there is nothing being said specifically, there is silence in the courtroom, Uh, the occasional whisper or rustle of papers, but uh, no elevator music in the background, (laughs) Uh, no silence. screen savers going on to keep everyone entertained. Uh, Everything is quite uh, somber. And then, of course, there is the presence of the victim of the crime, if it's a criminal case, or the family, which makes things much more serious. And then there's the potential for the person being tried to suffer great consequences. Uh, All of this adds together to make a courtroom, a very sobering experience. 
But this is often in remarkable contrast with the scene of the crime. Sometimes a person goes about their actions in a big night out and they're simply enjoying some fun with their friends, getting carried away with the moment and they do something silly. That's how it seems at the time when the crime is committed. But then when that crime ends up in court and those actions are discussed in the light of the law, in the light of the consequences upon the victims and by people who are dressed in suits talking to someone called your honour or your worship, those actions take on a different colour. And I think that crime is probably seen in its true light, not on the street, but in the courtroom. You understand what a crime really is when it comes before the court. This morning, I want you to imagine yourself in a courtroom. Shouldn't be hard. It's quiet here today. People are dressed up a little bit. Not too different. I want you to imagine that you are the person on trial. You're the accused. And to make things simple, we're just going to put you on trial for the way that you have lived your life in the past year. Back to the 28th of July last year, 2018. Because it's a courtroom, as you reflect upon the last year of your life, we're not going to put up a slideshow that shows all of your great achievements. We're not going to have some background music that you've been able to choose because it's your favourites. And we're not going to have people who stand up and say nice things about you at different parts of the service. We're just going to examine the facts of what you have done over the past year. Now, to help us to construct our courtroom, I want to go back to the Old Testament and I want to have a look at a similar situation. And I want to try and help us to build this scene. Let's have a look at Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to read just verses 2 to 4. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 2 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place, within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. God tells Moses here when he's speaking about these things that Aaron is the high priest. And as the high priest of Israel, he wasn't just allowed to go into the tabernacle where the ark of God was at any time. He didn't just have free access. But he said on the day when Aaron was to go into not just the first room of the tabernacle, the holy place, but when he was to go into the holy place and then go through the veil, the big curtain, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of God was. On that day, Aaron needed to take special care on how he approached. You see, there was only one day 
when the high priest was permitted to see the ark of God. One day when the high priest was enabled to go into the holy of holies. There were many joyful feasts in the calendar of Israel, but this day was not one of them. This was the 10th day of the seventh month, and it was a day specifically laid out to be for the afflicting of your souls. It's a day of soberness, a day of thoughtfulness, a day that God wanted the people to be with fear and trepidation because the high priest was going in before the presence of God. Now, when we speak about the ark, when we talk about that box uh, that uh, God uh, instituted as the central part of the worship of the nation of Israel, there were three things that were inside the box. And these are, spoken to, uh, these are revealed to us in the book of, of Hebrews or really collated from all the Old Testament references. And they're spoken to us in the book of Hebrews. There were three things in the ark. Just to keep you thinking, what were they? Those three things inside the ark of God. Can you tell me one? The Ten Commandments. So the law of God, that's one thing. Daniel, sorry? The rod that budded. Second thing, Dan? A pot of manna or a vase of manna. Good. The thing that dropped down, the food that dropped down from heaven. Three things that were inside the ark of God. And so Aaron on this day, the day of atonement, went in before the ark of God to stand before the mercy seat where God's glory was above the mercy seat and he presented himself before God. On this day, God convened the court. He brought Aaron into his courtroom. God, as the judge, stood above the mercy seat. His presence was there. The law was within the ark as the prosecutor of the accused. And Aaron stood as the high priest of Israel, the representative of the accused. He had the names of Israel written across, across his breastplate and in other places as well. And so he stood there on behalf of the whole nation. And the whole nation was represented outside by the people. And they stood waiting to see what would happen wasn't a day of rejoicing. It wasn't a day of casual catching up with people. But everyone was waiting to see what would happen to the high priest who was their representative. And so the prosecution in our uh, hypothetical situation, let's use a little bit of poetic license. The prosecution takes the floor as Aaron walks into the courtroom. And the prosecution argues their case, the prosecution being the law of God. And the case of the prosecution is summed up in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, if you have a look back there. We're going to have a look at closing arguments of the prosecution before we go back and have a look at the case. Verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3, Now we know that what things soever the law saith... It saith to them who are under the law, so this is what the law is saying to Aaron, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God, who is the judge. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin." If you imagine just those 10 commandments that are there in the ark of God, just 
10 of the hundreds that existed in the greater law. Commandment number nine was that thou shalt not bear false witness. And those throughout the nation of Israel could attest that they had borne false witness. And remember that this morning you're on trial too. (laughs) Have you told something that is not true about someone else? Have you borne false witness? Have you told someone something that is not true about yourself? Have you told a lie? Law number five, honor thy father and thy mother. Obey your mother and father. Not just for the kids here this morning, but for the adults here this morning who used to be kids. The law condemns us as disrespectful and disobedient. Law number two, thou shalt not have idols. Don't bow down, don't make any graven image and don't bow down unto them. Have no other gods before me as number one. Idol worshipping is a great pastime of Australians. We do it all the time without a little figurine, but we worship lots of things and place them where God should be in our lives. Whether it's stuff, whether it's sports, whether it's movies or famous people or even other people that we look up to and idolize. Idol worshipping all the time. Number 10, thou shalt not covet anything, basically. Covetousness is wanting what, you, what other people have, wanting more than you've got, saying what I've got is not enough. Lustfulness. Number 7, thou shalt not commit adultery. So, well, I might be all right there. Well, Jesus says, if you look on someone else with the intent of lusting after them in your heart, You've committed adultery in your heart. So as Aaron stood there before God, and as we stand here this morning, we could probably be described as lying, disrespectful, covetous, idol-worshipping adulterers. That's not how I would like to be standing in court as an accused person. You see, the law is very, very good at effectively establishing guilt. It's what it was made for. It proves the guilt of sinners like you and I. And the penalty for breaking the law is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. And the consequences of that are eternal. And so if you find yourself here this morning just thinking about your last year, just back to July last year, If you have sinned, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. If you think about Aaron standing before the tabernacle, sorry, standing before the ark that day with the law condemning him in the presence of God, God's not about to just brush aside his own law and say to Aaron, you know what, it doesn't matter, just go away. God made that law. God instituted that law in order to judge people just like Aaron on behalf of the rest of Israel. And so, as Aaron stands there before the ark, he is guilty, undeniably guilty. And he doesn't try and protest his innocence. And so how does this case play out? Let's have a look back at Leviticus chapter 16. This is not immediately obvious, but it's there. You'll see it. 
Leviticus chapter 16. We'll just read verse 11, 14, and 17. Just follow me and I'll tell you where we're going. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. Verse 14. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. And there shall, sorry, verse 17. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out. How would that feel? In there all by himself. No one else allowed to go in. Verse 17, halfway through, and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. What I want to draw your attention to is in verse 17 where it says, And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out. What's the verdict of this courtroom? The guilty walks out. It's amazing, isn't it? Effectively proven guilty, the judge is going to uphold the law, but the accused walks out. I hope we never find that in any of our courts. None of us want that, do we? We want justice to be served. And so how is the accused allowed to go free when the prosecution is so good and the judge is so fair? How is this possible? The answer is the doctrine that we're going to look through this morning, propitiation. Propitiation and justification go very closely together. This morning we're going to look at propitiation. Next Sunday morning we're going to have a look at justification. We're going to see how there are two perspectives on a very similar idea. So what is this uh, doctrine of propitiation? Let's answer some simple questions. What is propitiation? Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Sorry, we're flipping back between Romans and Leviticus. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. This is one of the verses we read earlier. It says, Whom God, this is talking about Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Propitiation is the removing of the offense that causes guilt. The removing of the offense that causes guilt. Propitiation, if you want to simply put it, it is satisfying God's reasonable justice. Satisfying God's justice, and it's not uh, an unfair justice, but it's a reasonable justice. Satisf satisfaction of God's justice. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 tells us that this occurs through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has been set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now the blood is the evidence of a death. If you have the blood of an animal or a person or the blood, then you know that you have the life of that person. The life of the flesh is in the blood and the blood is evidence of that life. 
It's a bit like a receipt of the transaction that has taken place. You can't carry death around, but when you have the blood, you have the life. Now, the same Greek word that is translated propitiation is also used in the book of Hebrews. And I want you to turn there to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to start reading from verse 2. So what is propitiation? It's the satisfaction of God's righteous demands or the satisfaction of God's justice. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2, the same words used here. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That's what we were just talking about. And after the second veil, that's the one he had to walk through, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Tick, you got that right. Well done. Verse 5. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. That's our word. Mercy seat. Mercy seat in the English the Greek word is exactly the same as is translated propitiation. So there in verse 5, over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Verse 6, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. And so we need to equate the idea of propitiation with the idea of the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat is very simple. It's simply the lid on the top of the ark, which was a box. The mercy seat was the lid and beaten out of that one piece of gold that was the lid, there were also two cherubim which came up and sort of overshadowed, looked down on that place of the mercy seat. But that mercy seat was the dwelling place of God. God dwelt between the cherubim and looked down upon that lid of the ark. Aaron would walk in on that one day that he was allowed to go in. And he would go in not without blood. He had to take the blood. And when he went in before God, he would apply the blood to the mercy seat as evidence that the death of the substitute had occurred. A death has occurred and I'm applying the blood of that sacrifice to the mercy seat. Once applied, that blood pleads for the forgiveness of the sinner. The blood pleads. And so how is it that the guilty could walk out of that courtroom, their guilt being established? Well, it's not by the relaxing of the law. It's only by the satisfying of the law on some, by somebody else. Someone else satisfied that law and proof of that was applied to the mercy seat. Now, if you think about this, the construction of the ark of God was very, very important. You have the box at the bottom that holds, among other things, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. 
you have the lid on the top, which is the mercy seat, and that's where the blood was applied. Then you have the cherubim which come up and God's presence was above the mercy seat between the cherubim. And so effectively what you have is God looking down through the mercy seat to the law. Without the blood, God looks straight at the law and the sinner is guilty. But when God looks through the blood to the law, he sees that the law is already fulfilled. Someone else has fulfilled that law, the one who shed his blood. As sinners on trial, you and I have no chance to say, I'm innocent, Your Honour. We can't. The prosecution's too good. <laughs> the judge is too righteous. He's not going to dismiss any of the evidence. He's going to accept it and we are going to be guilty. We are guilty. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no hope for you in trying to plead innocence. A good law given by a good God shows that sinners are not good. We stand before God condemned. And this is the significance of the doctrine of propitiation. Without the blood, we have no hope. None. Without the blood, we have no hope. And I want you to pause there before your mind jumps forward to Jesus Christ for a second. And think about the helplessness and the vulnerability of sinners standing before God, their guilt confirmed. No matter how many good things we do to try and outweigh that guilt, it wouldn't change our guilt, would it? Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You couldn't do any amount of good things to get rid of the guilt. It doesn't work that way. Not even the law of Australia works that way. If you got down on your knees and begged God, God, please don't judge me. Wouldn't make any difference. If you were before God guilty and you begged as the best beggar in the world, it wouldn't change an ounce of the evidence in that case. No amount of grief, of despondency before God, being unable to bear the consequences of your guilt before God, it wouldn't change God's mind because he'd have to be unjust to pardon you. And he's not going to do that. He can't do that. You see, if we can't meditate on where we would be without Christ, we're going to struggle to appreciate who Christ is for us. Sometimes we have to think about what it would be like without Christ, just to recognize what he's done. Without Jesus Christ, without our precious Savior, we are all helplessly guilty. But we're not without Christ, are we? We're not. There is a saviour. There is one to whom we can go and he's spoken about in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. And I want you to note how different this is to Aaron's visit to the tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 to 14. <clears throat> 
And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is speaking about the daily offerings, but it's true also of Aaron's yearly offering, isn't it? He had to minister every year the sacrifice that couldn't take away his sins because it wasn't a right substitute for him. It was an animal's death, not a person in his place like we saw in the doctrine of substitution. Verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Different to Aaron, Jesus our high priest went before God's presence and he offered himself as the sacrifice. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. And when he offered himself as a sacrifice when he died upon the cross, when his blood was shed, to give himself for us. He only had to do it once. And what did he do after he did it once? It says in verse 12, that this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. When do you get to sit down? When the job's finished. Aaron's job was never finished. He was never able to sit down. Every year there was another sacrifice. Every day there were daily sacrifices. But Jesus Christ offered and sat down. What does that tell us about God the Father? He was satisfied. God the Father was satisfied in Jesus Christ. Jesus eternally satisfied God's righteousness and justice in our place. And that means that now it is possible for you and I, even though we stand before God with a perfect prosecution and a perfect judge, to satisfy the judge. It's possible for us to please God. And that's remarkable. Perhaps this verse will burst with meaning now when it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. Without faith it is impossible to satisfy him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There is only one way that we can please God, and it is by faith. By faith. Why is faith the only way that we can please God? Because faith is the only way that we can receive Christ without ruining the sacrifice of Christ. It's the only way that we can do it. Some people try and receive the things that Jesus has done by good works, but in doing so, they ruin the sacrifice. They say that what Jesus has done is not enough. I've got to add my good works as well. The only way that we can receive what Jesus has done for us is to receive it by faith. Jesus has done everything that I needed him to do to satisfy God on my behalf. I have to be humble enough to say, I'm guilty. I'm powerless. I accept the person who stood in my place. That's saving faith. And because Jesus is our satisfaction, there is nothing that we can add. 
There is nothing that we need to add in order for God to be satisfied. We are simply complete in Him. Isn't that a wonderfully comforting statement? We are complete in Him. And so propitiation, satisfying God, does not depend upon works. It depends upon faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so we've answered the question of what is propitiation. That's what propitiation is, and it's wonderful. The second question we're going to ask this morning, and the next two are very short. The next one is why? Why propitiation? Why would God send his son to save us? He didn't have to, did he? Criminal should receive the consequences for their sin. That's normal. Why propitiation? The answer is God wants to accept us, but he doesn't want to have to amend who he is. He can't amend who he is. He's the eternal God, but he still wants to accept us. And that's a powerful thought. To think that God sent a propitiation because he wants to accept us. If we receive faith by the Lord Jesus Christ, if we receive Christ just by believing. We are acceptable to God. But you know what? We're made more than just acceptable in God's sight. Let's appreciate what acceptable really means. Have a look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 4. It's amazing to think that the people spoken about in verses 4 to 6 of Ephesians chapter 1 are the same people who used to be condemned criminals. Ephesians 1, 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's amazing. Holy and without blame before him, the judge. This was God's plan before the foundation of the world to choose those who would choose Christ to become holy and without blame. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. God offered from the very beginning that anyone who would place their faith in Jesus Christ as their saviour would be elevated to the status of accepted child of God. Not only a criminal pardoned, but an accepted, a satisfying child of God. That's how high we're lifted. And why did God do this? Because it was compelled upon him by the world? No. Because people kept begging and begging for it? No. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Sorry, verse 5. Having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God make this happen? Why did God send a propitiation? Because he wanted to. That's it. Because he wanted to. According to the good pleasure of his will. Because God considered this to be a good thing to do. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. 
Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to beg for salvation. We don't have to plead with God. God doesn't have to wait for our tears to stream down and then, all right, I'll send a saviour just because you begged. God had this plan from the foundation of the world. Doesn't that show to us the love that is in God? And so why propitiation? God initiated propitiation. He did. Because he wanted us to become his accepted children. Doesn't that put some value upon your life? (laughs) Thirdly and finally and very quickly, what for? Why did God say why did God make us satisfying to him why did he propitiate us if we want to put it in that way well chapter John chapter 1st John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 this is where we're going to finish 1st John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm sure it's your experience too that propitiation doesn't stop us from sinning. Just because Jesus has taken our place, just because he's satisfied God on our behalf, doesn't mean that we stop doing those things that God doesn't want us to do. As children of God, we ought not sin. That's what John says there in verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. We shouldn't sin. And we should strive not to. But if we do, we have an advocate. An advocate. Someone who stands on our behalf. Even though we're saved, even though we are the children of God, he's still our advocate. And that's a good thing for Christians to remember. Just because we're saved doesn't mean we don't need the advocate anymore. Every single day, I depend upon Jesus standing in my place. Every day. It doesn't translate into an economy of works once I become saved. My acceptance with God is always based upon Jesus Christ. And every day I need to look to him as my propitiation. But it says in verse 2 that he's not only the propitiation for our sins, that's for the sins of Christians or those who have received him as saviour, but it says and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of those who've received him. Jesus also died for the sins of the whole world. This tells me two things. Number one, it tells me about the love of Christ, that he would be willing to suffer for those who are never going to receive him. It's amazing. The second thing is that it tells me that he suffered for you who are here today who have not received him yet but might, even this morning. He's not just the satisfaction for the sins of those Christians here today who've already received him, 
but he's the satisfaction for your sins. You who may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may not have ever talked to God in prayer. You might be confused about who God is. You might have a confusing relationship with God yourself. But you know what? Jesus is your propitiation. He has died in your place, even though you may have never spoken a word to him in your whole life. Christ made the sacrifice to enable all people to be accepted by God. And we must be willing to only believe in order to be saved. Don't add anything to it. Just trust Christ. I want to finish just by quoting to you a couple of verses of the hymn Rock of Ages. These are two verses that aren't in our hymn book, but it was written by Augustus Toplady. And verses 2 and 3 in this version say, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Verse 3, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Beautifully brought together, and that's exactly what the, propitiation, the doctrine of propitiation is all about. May we say with the hymn writer, what a saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another perspective from which to examine the sacrifice and the salvation of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as we continue to look at you to see, Lord, just the depth of our salvation. Help us, Lord, to fall in love again with the saviour that we have. We ask that you would help us to remember, Lord, that it is all about you. And that we need to live our lives in thankfulness for what you have done. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we close. I pray particularly, Lord, for that seeking soul that may be here this morning. Uh, that one who has never called out to Jesus Christ for personal salvation. I pray that you would work in their heart. And I pray that you would help them to make that uh, commitment today. That they would trust Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. We thank you for our time in your word. We ask that your word would linger and change us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.